What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, have I told you about that dream I had the other day? What dream? So I had this dream. It was a sweaty dream? No. Nah. Okay. I was on this adventure. Yep. Well, I was in Germany during this dream. You're in Germany? Yeah. Were you and wearing I, Lederhausen? I was, yes. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely was. And I was drinking steins of beer. And I just got this overwhelming need to buy a dog. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So I just popped on over to House Hamburg Shepherds. Oh, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd have to. And I know that they have the best German Shepherds, but the German Shepherds. So I bought one of their duchies. Oh. Man. The best. Shit-mouthing German Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> and so so then in this dream, I, I finished my giant beer and mm-hmm. I took off my Lena Hosen. Yep. And I got that duchy mm-hmm. and I put it on a plane yep. because they can ship them anywhere. It turns out I didn't have to even be there to buy this dog in this dream. Right. And I, I flew it over to the US. Yep. All right. So when I got there, I realized I need some equipment for this dog, this duchy that I've got. Wait. Were you in Canada or were you in the US? Well, I was in North America or somewhere. It's not important exactly Okay. Where. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, you know what I need? Some like training gear, some collars, some leashes, harnesses. So guess where I got it from? It sounds like it's a big lead up to an old mate, Mach LaPointe. Mach LaPointe. I just yep. got under Canon Dynamics yep. and had it shipped to me. Mm. Didn't matter where I was in the US or North America, actually. Yep. I had Canon Dynamics ship it to me. It was wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, then I'm out training this duchy mm. in his all of his fancy equipment. The yep. duchy that I got from House Hamburg Shepherds, mm-hmm. using the equipment I got from Canon Dynamics. Yep. And then I was training in dog park because that's how I train. Mm. And there were some people and they had some <laughs> sort of unruly behavior from their dog. Yep. And I think at this point I was in Ashland, Virginia. And uh, fancy I, that. I thought I said to them. They were like, oh, can you help us with this dog? I said, no, fuck you. I don't no, want to. I'm a dog part daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, fuck you, I don't want to. Yep. But I know someone who will come to your home here in Ashland, Virginia, while you're at work and will do like a little bit of a training session with your dog while you're gone. No way. You're not talking about Melanie Benway. It was Melody Benway I was Bloody talking hell. about. Kindred canine. So I g- gave those details. Anyway, so I went on to, you know, do some cool things with this duchy. Mm-hmm. And then I had to come back to Australia yep. and I brought the dog. Wow. But you know what I didn't bring? What? Was any of his equipment. Oh, he left it all there. I left it all there. Okay. So I needed all new gear. And guess where I got my leashes, collars, tugs, harnesses. Dog mills. Blah, 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 blah. Buffed Central. Einswick dog clip. Einswick Buffed. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got here, I realized, oh, you know what? I had been traveling this fictional dog in my dream around mm-hmm. in the crate that he was shipped from uh, House Hamburg Shepherds. Yeah. Well, I need a custom crate now. So I had a custom crate bill by the Buffed. Wow. Einswick.com. 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 Yeah. Einswick.com. Yeah. So after your dream, when you woke up, did you wake up with a boner? You've ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on the line all the way from Annapolis is the only person who spends more time in Clubhouse than Glenn. Oh, you've, been, Greco. Oh, you've been clocking up some miles lately. We've been catching you. <laughs> Luke messaged me last night. I, hang on. I've got to school Pat before we get to air. <laughs> Luke messaged me last night and he goes, hey, for a guy that says he's never going to go back in Clubhouse again, he d- he spends a lot of time in Clubhouse. <laughs> Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks, Kim. Sorry about that. We just had to get some things in order first. We have to stop making this the Clubhouse podcast. We have to stop talking about it. But we met you through Clubhouse and we've been in heaps of really cool conversations mm. You've been sort of a part of the IACP community, but I haven't met you before. It was, I think we discussed one day that you were at the conference that I was at the first time. I don't know that we ever met there at um, St. Pete's Beach and ones before, but we hadn't met in person. And the first thing I wanted to get out of the way was to say that you are such a nice person. You make me feel bad sometimes. So, <laughs> some of your, some of the answers to things that I hear you give are so considered and thoughtful mm. and in line with the principles in which I try to live my life. So when Glenn said, Hey, I would like to get Kim on the show. I was like, fuck yes, that would be super cool. And add to all of that, you have a really interesting background in marine mammal training. I do have a very interesting background in marine mammal training, and I appreciate the comment or noticing anyway that I'm, I always try to be quite conscious of what I'm saying and making sure that what I'm saying is really what I mean. And so I do practice that in my everyday life. And so uh, I do think that that's a skill that's handy on Clubhouse when you're only dealing in an audio format. I do appreciate you bringing that up. You carry yourself well in rooms, Kim. One thing I've really noticed is that if the conversation is sort of fading out whenever you're in the room or whenever you take over or whenever you're moderating anything, like you bring the energy back to the room. And that's a skill set all on its own, like to be able to carry conversations, to be able to lead into conversations, to get people thinking along a different line. And that's much needed in some of those rooms because sometimes you go in there and the, the conversation is just like fading away and it's just awkward silences and so forth. But you kind of bring spirit and energy back into the room. That's a talent unto itself. And that's really one of the important things on having people on the show is that people can carry a conversation. They've got interesting backstories or they've got relevant industry related topics they want to talk about. And you've got a bunch of them. So we're going to start deep diving into some of your origin stories. I know now that you're really a trainer's trainer, you mostly train people to be dog trainers. Can we unwind that and go all the way back to the start, please? Absolutely. I always like to check when someone asks me that, like, well, how far back exactly do you want to go? My first experience really dabbling into the animal world was horseback riding lessons when I started at six years old. By the time I was 10 years old, I was starting to compete. Um, By the time I was 13 years old, I was competing at a national level. By the time I was 18 years old, I was ranked third in the country. Wow. Mm. That's kind of where it started. Cool. At 18 years old, I had three horses. I was showing every weekend and we would travel anywhere up to eight hours up and down the East Coast to go to horse shows every weekend. And I think the the culmination for me anyway, like the, the coolest thing was the opportunity to compete with my horse at Madison Square Garden. Wow. Yeah, right. So what kind of competition was on there? What was that? 
The type of riding that I did is called hunters. And so that specific competition was called small junior hunters, meaning I was less than 18 years old and riding a horse that was a particular size. Mm -hmm. What is hunters? What does that look like? It is horses that are jumping over fences. Uh, I think a really good way to explain it to someone that doesn't know is to think about it much like figure skating. So if I were to watch somebody in a figure skating competition, unless they fell down on the ice, I would be really impressed with what I was seeing. But you often hear the commentators commenting about how that particular jump wasn't good or they didn't do it quite exactly the way they were supposed to. Um, I don't really see all those details when I'm watching the figure skating. It was very similar in what I did. So in competing in hunters, the judges were actually judging the form that the horse has in the air over the jumps and the space in between the two jumps was exactly the right number of strides. And that even in the corners of the rings, the horse didn't do anything that, that looked odd at all. So they wouldn't have been able to take a weird sidestep or look at something in the audience. And so it should have looked like it was super easy and there was no, no problems. We never ever really would knock a rail down or anything like that. So unlike what you've maybe seen in the Olympics, it's not really jumping super high fences going really fast. It's jumping a little bit lower. We were jumping three and a half feet, but looking at getting the form perfect in the air is what the goal was. Uh-huh. That's interesting. How's your back? It's not great. I definitely see a chiropractor on a regular basis. Mm. I'm sure that all the impact from jumping plays a small part in that, but I've always had careers in my entire adult life has been super active. And um, whether it's jumping horses or lifting 50 pound gates or 50 pound blocks of frozen fish or a hundred pound dog that's trying to pull. So it's sort of always been uh, one way or the other mm-hmm. for sure. It's really such a occupational thing for a lot of people in the horse industry that rarely come out of it with a good back. Yes, I would agree with that for sure. Horse riding up until 18 competing at national level. Tell us mm-hmm. then I guess you leave school and you got to get a job. And so what I- happened then? I actually went to college and I I studied biology. I have a Bachelor of Science in Biology. And when I started college, I was under the assumption that I was on a trajectory to become a veterinarian. I sort of felt like at the time that if you're really smart and you like animals, uh, that's kind of a no-brainer. That's where you end up at vet school. So I started my college career anticipating that would be my, um, my trajectory. But then I did an internship in between my junior and senior year of college, where I studied wild dolphins off the coast of North Carolina. And that was fun. Tell us (laughs) about that. Right. So that was fun. So I really wanted to sort of dive a little deeper and figure out what careers would be available for anybody interested in doing uh, work with marine mammals. And I ended up when I graduated from college being hired at a facility training dolphins um, really right, right out of right out of college. Wow. And so having a degree in biology that wouldn't have involved any training at that facility, they then took up the training role for you. So it was like an internship sort of thing with them. Exactly. So, well, I, I'm one of the very few people in the marine mammal industry that was hired full-time right out of the gate. Most people in the industry start with an internship um, or some sort of an apprentice program. I was hired full-time because of the experience I had with horses. They were pretty comfortable with, with recognizing I would pick up on stuff 
very quickly. Um, so hired full-time, starting to work at the facility down. This was at a place that was in Mississippi. And we had dolphins and sea lions and exotic birds. And when I first started working there, like the first six months that I worked there, they were in the final production stages of filming a movie that had sea lines in it. And so they were filming 24 hours a day. So anytime I wasn't actually on the clock for work, I was volunteering on the movie set. So my first six months in the industry was like a, um, a crash course in every way, shape and form for being able to learn. And that I think that was sort of one of the experiences that catapulted my career because I was able to learn so much in a really uh, very short amount of time. Who mentored you during that time, Kim? Like, that's what I'm interested in finding about, like the indoctrination of the training program. Was it progressive? Tell us all about it, like your thoughts on it, how it compares to moving into training that you've done now. I'm really interested in what happens in the background of those sort of organizations. Well, I can tell you at that particular organization that I started at in Mississippi, it wasn't ideal. I just kind of got literally and figuratively dumped in the deep end. Mm. And I sort of carved my own path and found the people that I worked with that, that would be even willing to teach me. But then I just asked them a thousand questions. So my experience is not normal in the industry. And it's not even what I would even have recommended if I'd had a say in it at all. Um, I just sort of took a a situation where I could have easily been in over my head. And then I just, I reached out in a variety of different ways. So especially with the trainers, the lead trainer on the movie production set took me under her wing and basically taught me more than I've learned from any other one person, I think in the industry, but Fast forward in my career of working with marine mammals, most of my career was at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. And there I was a senior trainer in charge of helping to teach new trainers and interns how to do that job. And that program was maybe more like you would expect in that the people learned very, very slowly and our building the relationship with the animals was always first and making sure that the trainers were comfortable with each one of the animals individually and that the animals were comfortable with each trainer um, long before we would actually be having them start to work them or do training sessions. Um, but it was a little funny with the dolphins because when there was a new trainer, they would oftentimes mess up on purpose, like to see if the trainer would notice. So for instance, I might send, if I was a new trainer, I might send one of the older, more experienced dolphins to go do a front flip and they might jump out of the water actually doing a backflip, but they would be, the dolphin would be sort of playing around to see if you would blow the whistle or not based on what they were doing. And as a new trainer, it's often um, a really simple mistake to make because you're just excited that they're listening to you that they're jumping out of the water. And so more times than not, the new trainer bridged, you know, clicked, blew the whistle incorrectly at the time. Is that one of those, if you give them an inch, they take a mile kind of things. They just progressively get you know, less and less compliant, or is it just a little fun game the dolphin plays or is it, you know, headed in a bad direction? It's probably a little bit of both, but the coaching that, that was there for the new trainer was certainly on par to help set the new trainer and the dolphins up for success. For me personally, the most challenging experience I had in that regard was in fact at Mississippi, where I was starting to learn how to do 
a behavior that's in the dolphin industry, we called it a hydro, where we would have one dolphin basically pushing each one of our feet. So it's two dolphins, one on each foot. And then I would dive to the bottom of the exhibit, which is 25 feet deep and position myself to the middle and then turn and that they would start swimming really fast and they would push you maybe 15 or 20 feet out of the water. Wow. One of the dolphins was also renowned for these little antics at the beginning. And so the first time I did this behavior with him, you know, I pointed at him and pointed at one other dolphin and dove in the water. And you feel like everything is right exactly as you would expect until you get to the bottom at 25 feet down. And then they stopped pushing (laughs) (laughs) and you're like, what is happening? I had been warned that this would happen, but it's still a little unsettling when you're down there. And it's really, if you hold steady, they will start pushing you again. Everything's fine. And they won't do it again after that. But if you panic because you're 25 feet below the surface and you feel like you'll run out of air, then you could swim to the surface. And after that, it'll be a little harder for them to do it correctly. Cause that's kind of fun for them. I think that's fascinating. So you think mm. it is just them being cheeky or do you think there's maybe some mechanism by like, they're worried that if you panic, you could injure them or something like that. And they're, they're sort of testing the water on you. So let me just give you sort of a point of reference for that is my own dog. He can watch a decoy in a bite suit and he can tell by the way that you move, whether you know what you're doing. And we, when he gets an experienced decoy, he smokes them. And because he knows they'll keep him safe and it'll all be cool. But if he watches someone get dressed and watches them move clunkily, he's actually quite cautious. And sometimes people say to me, oh, isn't that nice? He takes it easy on new decoys. I'm like, no, because they've injured him many times. And he's he's actually being careful not to get himself injured rather than worrying about them. Do you think there's any possibility the dolphin was doing the same thing with new people? They're like, hey, if you panic under here, you could hurt us. So we're going to give you some space and find out what you're like. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're just jerks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But it is funny that they're analytical like that. They can sit back and watch you and think, oh, today we're going to fuck your day up and make everything go pear-shaped. And I remember now that you're talking about this, I'm reflecting on when I was in my teens and uh, we have a place in the Gold Coast called SeaWorld and I went to watch a dolphin show there and it just literally turned into a shit show because the dolphins just weren't responding on the day and they were sort of like, oh, well, you know, this happens and they were making fun out of it, but the dolphins just basically decided they were going to have a day where they thought we're not doing anything, you know, and they were literally just running away with the act. I was there for a couple of days and the next time I went back there, the, everything ran flawlessly. It's like they had one day where just everything was terrible and one day where everything was exemplary, like they did every trick they were supposed to do. So that's the unfortunate thing when you're in those sort of situations, there's really nothing you can do about it when the dolphin just decides, I'm not gonna comply today and I'm not gonna go with it. So I don't know what happens behind the scenes. I think I was telling you in one of the clubhouse rooms one day, Narelle and I, when we went over to Bora Bora, we stayed in a place called Marea. They've got a, a dolphin pool there that's backs right literally right onto the ocean and I went down and hung out with the trainers we got talking and had some beers the night before and they said yeah yeah come down to the pool and hang out with us and you know like if you want you can help us do some dolphin training and I said cool done so I went down there and you know like we hung out and we were talking operant conditioning and all sorts of science and nerdy stuff and I got to just hang out and swim with a dolphin then Narelle came down and we did a pool session with the dolphin so that was really my only fun training session that I've ever had but that's one day and you've done like years and years of it so it's really fascinating to understand what actually happens in the background of that. I want to 
ask you a, a very serious question, but first I want to just put something out there into the ether. If anybody is currently a dolphin trainer and listens to this show and has the opportunity for me to get blasted in the air by two dolphins, <laughs> I want to do that. Well, you nearly so, got blasted in the backside by yeah, one. Yeah, so like I have a, a difficult <laughs> past with dolphins. I don't know if you know, Kim, there's running jokes within our community. I was once, I thought I was going to be eaten by a shark and it turns out I was actually just raped by a dolphin. And so I have a difficult past with dolphins, but I would like to mend that bridge and get over this. And I feel like being blasted in the air by two dolphins could really change my feelings about them. So if anyone can offer me to do that, I definitely would like it. Let me ask my serious question. <laughs> in dogs, a lot of people who have been in the industry for a long time will talk about the huge progression in training and the science around training and even the most People who are staunch balance trainers, like take Len, for example, right, will tell you that 30 years ago, it was a much more compulsive industry. And mm. it was just because that's how it was. That's what people knew to do. We often sort of attribute, you know, don't shoot the dog, the book, and that being sort of a part of the steering towards positive, more, you know, more rewards-based training. And often we attribute that shift in mindset to marine mammal trainers who brought knowledge from that space into the dog training space. I'm really curious, is there a dark days in marine mammal training when the training was much more compulsive? Um, and when did that shift? If so, when did it shift towards more rewards-based positive training or more ethical sort of training? And what was the catalyst for that? I don't know the honest answer to your question. I never heard stories from people who'd worked in the industry long before me I started at a facility down in Mississippi that I didn't actually think was, it didn't have the best reputation in, in the industry as far as quality of care for the animals. So I think if there'd been anything, it, you would have heard it from there. It was one of the, it was the second oldest facility in the country for having marine mammals. And the stories that I guess I'd heard from past is, is more lack of ability to get medical behaviors trained. And so needing to use nets or some sort of a way to, to collect the dolphins when they, when they needed to take care of them medically, but they couldn't do that voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So most of our day, really, probably 70% of our training sessions had some form of, of working on cooperative care with the animals, because that really, if you're talking about making sure that you can take the best care of the animals, especially for longevity and, and medically making sure that their needs are met, it's just, we didn't want to add any extra stress on them for things that we could have been able to do voluntarily. So I honestly, I don't have stories like that to tell you. doesn't mean that they don't exist. I I just didn't hear about them. Okay. That's cool. I just, um, I'm thinking about, you know, everybody's probably seen that Blackfish. It was many years ago that I watched it, but the first facility that Tilikum was put into where the training was, he was expected to be trained by the other two whales that were there and not realizing that they were from different areas and probably couldn't really communicate very well. And those whales kind of just beat on him and, you know, that imprinting was probably not great for him. But yeah, I would love to know, you know, where that, the original start point of more rewards-based training was like it. And if it, if it was came from somewhere else into marine mammal stuff. I don't know. All I know is from when I started and this was in the mid nineties, when I started, it was a hundred percent already integrated into the industry. Yeah. Right. Cool. 
So, Kim, are you comfortable talking about the movie Blackfish? Because I'm curious about that because as outsiders, we've seen a documentary that was put together and, you know, often is the case with documentaries, there's a line that they want to convey to the general public or to the audience that's watching it. And I guess for most people who watch that, there was a large degree of outrage, as there is with most of those angles. As a dolphin trainer and somebody that was involved in that industry, could you tell us how that affected the industry and you know, like what that meant to you? For sure. So I want to start by saying that I never worked at SeaWorld, but I did work for people who had spent most of their career at SeaWorld. And everything that I had known from them about SeaWorld is that I had and have nothing but the utmost respect for the way that SeaWorld ran their programs and especially with how they cared for the animals. Some of the animals that were owned by the National Aquarium in Baltimore were lent also to SeaWorld. And I had been down there a couple of times to check on them and they were wonderful, very well cared for. And so having seen the documentary when it first came out, I remember being outraged because I knew some of the people I had met Don at one of the conferences and seeing some of the people in the documentary and knowing a little bit about their, about them, not from the doc that was not included in the documentary. It was one of those, like I watched it and it was almost like, I can't believe that anybody could put this movie together. It was so far outside the realm of like what even seemed like reality from Mm. my perspective of what I was watching. I remember thinking like, you know, I wonder how SeaWorld's going to respond to this. And again, an outsider's perspective, I felt like SeaWorld didn't respond to it, but I wasn't surprised. It was like so wrong and so many things like they'd have an interview with somebody talking and then they would show a clip of something that if you watched the movie, you would make the assumption that the clip they showed was of the person who was talking, but it wasn't of the person who was talking. It was of somebody different. And so it was just like, there were so many things that they did in making that movie that were so grossly, like purposely trying to misrepresent that my first impression was like, I can't believe how off it is that hard to imagine that anybody would really sort of believe everything that's in that. And then everybody believed everything that was in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it went, you know, super viral. And it felt to me, I was no longer in the industry at that point. It felt to me like, you know, I have conversations with people and have told them I'm a dolphin trainer. And everywhere I went, I would get the whole like, you know, holy cow, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And then there was a period of time where it was almost as if I wouldn't want to tell someone I was a dolphin trainer. Like I was instantly judged by Mm. having done that. And that was so surprising to me because um, I hadn't done anything different one day when everyone thought it was amazing to the next day when everyone was like, I can't believe you could have done that. The only thing that was different was this documentary that wasn't even in, in my opinion, accurate. And so it was, it's been, it's been difficult and challenging to, advocate in the face of some people not really wanting to hear what you're saying. <laughs> it yeah. may, may ring some, some truths from some of the issues that we have in, in the dog training world, like depending every facility is, you know, it's, it's run well and the animals care is their top priority. And the people who have that job are doing it because they love the animals. And so to think differently 
it makes me sad. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. I do know the facility that I worked at, uh, the National Aquarium in Baltimore, had after that whole thing happened, dolphins at one point had been their biggest draw. And then they were struggling with feeling like there were people saying that they shouldn't have the dolphins in captivity anymore. And so they did a research study and they tried to determine more from a PR standpoint than anything else, but um, they did a study to find out should they remove the dolphins from the aquarium and put them in an open ocean pen and just care for them, but no longer have them be part of the aquarium. And the answer to their PR report was yes, you should do that, that people, the general public would feel better that those dolphins would be living in the ocean, even if they weren't free. And myself and anyone else that I had ever known that worked with those collection of animals were incredibly strongly willed about that that would be super detrimental to those animals, most of which had been born there at that aquarium and that they wouldn't really know how to deal with even just the elements of being out in the ocean, much less anything else that they'd have to deal with. So the stress to move them felt so wrong, but they were thinking like, from a PR standpoint, everyone would think that was great. And so it put, I think it put a lot of zoos and aquariums across the country and I'm sure around the world in a really very challenging position. That's heavy. Mm. And I think that's one of the big problems to relate that to not just dolphin stuff and but dog training is that's part of the issue with putting things to the court of public opinion because they're ill-informed. And so it would be fine if we could educate the public completely and then go, hey, make a very informed decision, but that's just not how it goes. And, it, you know, I was in a talk the other day about dog trainer legislation and I was I was panicking because of that kind of thing. And it was just the idea that any legislation that would come up about being a dog trainer, that the decisions of what that's going to involve is going to be battled out in the court of emotion, not mm. science. And the people that will ultimately make the decision as to what that legislation looks like, any appeals to that will be in the, the court of public opinion and trial will be done by the media, not anyone who knows anything about it. And I think that there's a lot of people in the dog training space that think like, okay, great, we'll be able to ban certain dog training procedures and tools. And that would be how we, through this legislation, that's how we'll get that done. And I was like, oh no, because you might find that through that legislation, you end up with breed specific legislation because people think there are German shepherd trainers and there are pit bull trainers. And like, if you let the public decide how experts are allowed to do their job, it's not their fault that they'll get it drastically wrong because they've been conditioned to think a particular way by the narrative that's fed to them by the media. And, and it's really interesting to me that you, you mentioned that documentary or we mentioned the documentary, but the way you spoke about it is because this year I've sort of taken up a bit of a hobby in very, very amateur filmmaking kind of stuff. And as I'm educating myself to do that, it's really interesting. Like, you know, if someone coughs or splutters during an interview, there's techniques for, you know, seamlessly cutting that out with video. Like on a podcast, you know, we can cough and I can fart right now and Glenn will be able to cut it out, right? No one will know. <laughs> I'll but, leave it in just for, just for laughs. <laughs> but in video, you see the jump in the edit, right? And so there's all these little techniques that you can do to make that invisible by rolling B-roll over the top and that kind of stuff. And the more I'm learning about that, the more I see, especially when I watch, say, reality TV or whatever, you realize like, oh, this is a different scene. 
And you only need a little bit of education in it. Like I, you know, I'm far from an expert, but you can see like that's not, they're not answering that question. It's doctored. Yeah. So they started out answering that question and mm. then you've shown some like back clip and now they're saying something that is completely unrelated to the question that they were asked. And it's so easy to do that. And I think, you know, once you sign that consent form, like, yeah, I agree to be in it and here's my really good information and I, I'm going to advocate the good side and I'm going to educate the public. You're not. You're going to say whatever they want you to say, regardless of what comes out of your mouth. They can edit that. Anyone who's motivated to do so can edit that to tell whatever story they want to tell. It's terrifying. I got a really good wake up call with that myself. And we've been talking about this over the past three years about how important it is to get your backstory right and listen to all the narrative rather than just the line that's trying to be sold. There was a clip on Facebook where this was when COVID started to spring into action and everybody was freaking out and all these conspiracy theories were coming up about what it was and where it came from and who sort of created it, et cetera, et cetera. And they had this image and it was some dramatic music playing in the background and there were all these doctors and then they were showing clips of DNA strands and molecules and cells and everything like that. And they had all writing underneath it, which was, you know, leading up to a conspiracy. And then right at the end, it said, this is all bullshit. This is just a clip to show you how easy it is to dupe you into thinking that, you know, the narrative is leading up to a conspiracy theory. This is just something I just made up in 30 seconds to show you how easily led people are on the internet. And I thought, holy shit, that would be hopefully a real wake up call for a lot of people because you're sitting there waiting for it to get to the end thinking, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what happened. You assholes have done this to us and you've created this and then vaped it out through the vape trails that the planes leave and you've blown it all over the country and you've done this and done that. You know, like that's along the lines of where this thing was going, but that's what people are hoping for. And it's, it's just so emotional and so constructed. It's, it's really sinister what the message can be sometimes. For sure. I feel like my husband is an FBI agent. And so there are times where I've said, or, you know, I, I knew, oh, I need to be careful. Like I wouldn't want this type of information to get out of public, my personal information or something about that or address, maybe on Google or something. And he was like, somebody wants to find out your address on Google. They're going to find it out. Like you can be careful if you want to be, but if somebody really wants to dig deep enough, they'll be able to find it. So it's interesting to hear sometimes his, his views on things like that. So I'm not surprised he probably watched the same ones, but from a very different perspective than perhaps where you were watching it from. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. you seen the documentary Don't Fuck With Cats? I have not. Oh, my God. You Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you got to watch that. That is really <laughs> mind-bending. And that emphasizes the point you were talking about before. Like when somebody puts their mind to it, even, you know, they have no – um, detective skills or anything like that. But if they're, you know, they're, they're somewhat analytical and they, they've they got time and passion, how they can literally find the most minute details. I won't give it away. I think you should watch it. Anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen it before, it is really an education on what um, passion and drive can do. That's our bi-monthly plug for Netflix. Yes, yes. Yep. <laughs> We've fulfilled our quota. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so let's keep moving along with your story. So mm. help pull me and Glenn out of our conspiracy theorist rabbit hole. Right? <laughs> so what was the catalyst to get you out of the pool and into dog training? Well, funny you should phrase it that way because it was quite literally having a baby. I was pregnant and still working as a dolphin trainer with my first child. And then I was working one day and she was born the next morning. So um, okay. I ended up staying home with her for a couple of years. And then I had my 
second child and continued to stay home. And then when I was married, then I got divorced. And then I was originally planning to just stay home with the kids. But once I got divorced, the tables turned and it was one of those like, well, now I have to work. Um, And so I didn't really want to go back into the industry of working with dolphins when I was a single parent of two very young children, because it's working on the weekends and holidays. And if an animal's sick, you don't go home. And I didn't think that would be conducive at all for, for a single parent with two small children. So it was interesting. I went through probably almost a year of incredible stress and I'm sure depression, but I felt like I had already had my dream job and I was very much getting pushed back out into the world in that in order to be a good mom, I felt like I was going to have to then have a job I didn't like. Um, It took me quite a bit of work and some really deep self-analysis to be able to come out with possibility as my priority. And then I sort of just decided that there doesn't need to just be one dream job. It could be any number of dream jobs. And I, I sort of sparked in that direction and started a company, never really wanting to be an entrepreneur or even knowing much about what that meant. I just knew that I was really good at teaching people how to train animals and that whether that was by the side of a dolphin pool or whether that was in somebody's family room, wouldn't make a difference. And that my priority at that time, starting this business, Pause and Possibilities, that's not an accident that that is in the name of my business was um, it was started from really wanting to still have some flexibility and be there for my kids when they were young. Mm -hmm. And so when you first started taking on, like you probably had pet dogs that you were using your dolphin training sort of techniques on the marine mammal stuff, everything you learned, but was there like a learning curve that you said, yeah, because they, they are different. Right. And I think it's one of the interesting things. I think when I love talking to people who have trained marine mammals, exotic animals, and that kind of stuff is that, you know, they're not domesticated. Dogs are different. You can train them differently. They will accept different inputs and they run on land. Yeah. Mm. But you know, <laughs> the dolphins run away too. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, they are different. You can use different techniques. They're not as dangerous. You know, it's a, it's a different thing. So what was that learning curve like? And was that seamless for you because you'd been doing it parallel anyway, or did you have to go like, oh, okay, I've got to learn about dogs and the differences between them and things I've been training in the past? I think it's a great question. For me, it felt seamless. It may have been the huge variety of animals I had been training up until that point. Mm -hmm. I'd also had a dog myself that I owned him for five years prior to having my first child. So I'd had a dog, a border collie who was trained to herd sheep uh, before I got him, but I maintained his training on sheep and also Frisbee work. But he was, he became a very, very challenging dog. Once my baby was born, anything that you could possibly imagine as far as the incompatibility of owning a border collie trained for herding and a baby in the same house showed up in my world. And so I had reached out to professional dog trainers, even when I was a professional marine mammal trainer to get support on some of the struggles I was having. And so by the time I resolved the, all of my issues with my border collie, I felt like at that point, I probably was in the learning curve path that you were mentioning Mm -hmm. long before I started a business as a dog trainer. Yeah. Cool. Kim, with your history and background in sea mammal training, did you find that there was one particular mammal itself that helped 
find the gap between leaving that job and going into dog training? Like, was it dolphins or was it training with the sea lions or anything like that? Like, which one was it that gave you the edge that you needed to transfer over? Are seals dog mermaids or not? That's what we want to know. Well, we might have to do another episode on the differences between seals and sea lions. But sea lions, Glenn, to answer your question, I think because I always felt like they were very similar to Mm. dogs in that mainly because with sea lions, we would use words to communicate with them um, and not with dolphins. We would only use hand signals Mm -hmm. with the sea lions or the seals, either one, we would use verbal cues and hand signals, much like you would in dog training. And I also think, especially with sea lions, they are so easily able to maneuver on land that they would come up and out of the water, tuck their hind flippers under them and walk around on all fours. And so they would be walking around with you and following you around. It, It would almost feel like you're interacting with the dog. Yeah, it seems like the natural progression. I mean, I'm not talking with experience because obviously I haven't worked in that arena before, but I mean, the closest I've got to a sea lion is being um, like pecked on the cheek when they do their, you know, the posing for a kiss when they come up and slobber all over your face. But from my own observations, when I've seen them working and seen trainers interacting with them, they appear very dog-like. Like, you know, the manifestation is almost directly related to what you would expect to be doing in dog training. But as I said, I have no experience in it. So it's always interesting to hear somebody in the industry who has extensively and, you know, done deep learning with those type of animals before. Mm-hmm. In the in the past, I've heard other Exotic animal trainers refer to the seal trainers. I don't know about sea lions, uh, but uh, as fish chuckers, as kind of a, a derogatory fun term. And he explained it to me that it was because unlike dogs, they don't really develop a relationship. So like anybody that gives the correct signal and has the reinforcer, they'll do the work for. Is that accurate or can you speak to that? So back to the very beginning of this podcast, when you talked about how I can articulate so nicely, I want to just say, no, I don't agree with that at all, but I don't really want to say that. I want to be nice about it. So I don't know who it is that you were speaking to, but having been somebody that worked with SEALs, I did find that having a good relationship with them enabled you to train significantly better. Uh, And one of the facilities I worked at one time in New Jersey, we had a collection of seals and one of the seals was losing her eyesight. And when I started to work there, the trainers there were struggling to get her to still haul out of the water and come into the building, mainly because it was a big dramatic change in, in light from being outside to going inside. And when she was starting to lose her eyesight, that was a little nerve wracking for her. And the scale that we used to weigh the seals was inside. So it was important to be able to keep good weight tabs on her each week would be ideal. And when I started to work with her, I spent a lot of time building a relationship and a good rapport. And in all intents and purposes, I felt like it was 100% trust and then well-timed bridging of her forward motion prior to, you know, it was like... I I had felt like they were trying to bribe her to come inside and that was not working, but with some well-timed clicks followed by the food for her forward motion, it didn't take very long to get her to come inside. But if there wasn't a relationship that had a lot of trust, I don't think she ever would have gone inside again. Mm. So they are dog mermaids. You've just confirmed for me. So (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that that's interesting. It's official. 
And just something you just said then, it's, it's a really interesting topic. I don't know if it's a, for us now, but the difference between bribery and, and reinforcement. And I think that that's something that as trainers, we sometimes get really, it's easy to fall into the trap of bribing a dog rather mm-hmm. than getting the behavior to happen and reinforcing it. And I caught myself just the other day, like, you know, I had those two puppies that we were raising and one of them is they're very interesting little puppies. One of them's really sooky and likes to, you know, he's got a lot of relationship and likes to cuddle and all that. The other's a thug. He don't give a shit about you, right? Like he's like, no, I, I'm very operant creature, like with me anyway. And I caught myself, like he would, when we go to the gate, I've got to clip up the leash and he runs away. And I caught myself actually going like, okay, here's the food to call you in. And then I clip up the leash. And I was like, after like two or three days- him. I was like, I'm bribing this little fucker. Like I'm calling him in with the food Mm. and then I'm clipping up the leash. And I had to stop myself. And on like the fourth rep, I was like, okay, no, I'm going to wait by this gate till you come to me. I'm clipping up the leash and then I'm giving you the piece of food. And that tiny little difference in sequence is the difference between bribery and reinforcement and radically would change the you know, the relationship with the dog, but the way that he has, he feels about me, the way that he feels about the leash being attached, the way that he feels about leaving the gate. And it's just that tiny little change in sequencing. And, you know, I I know some stuff about dog training and even I fucked it up until I was like, hang on, stop. Wait, are you saying you're not perfect? <laughs> I was like, hang on, stop. Are you admitting that on? <laughs> yeah, I am definitely admitting I'm not perfect. But what I realized was I was like, this 16-week-old puppy has outsmarted me. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been around for a while, man. Like, I know some stuff and, like, I've got some life experience. And this little creature that's only been alive for 16 weeks is manipulating me. Right? And I was like, no, we're not having this. And just changing that tiny little sequence. So to speak to that, the difference in marine mammal training is you'd have to be very careful with that, like really, really careful, right, to distinguish bribery from reinforcement. Yes. And I think, you know, you, you just mentioned that your little puppy potentially was outsmarting you. I do think it, it speaks a little bit to the level of intelligence as well, in that they find loopholes and can figure stuff out really, really quickly. And speaking of dolphins as well, is that they communicate with each other much more prevalently and affect each other's behavior in addition to what the trainers are doing. And so that was fascinating. I think one of the most fascinating experiences working at the aquarium is we had five dolphins that we would do a show with. If we did the show with all five, at one point we started our show, we called it a blind open, meaning the the audience couldn't see any people or any dolphins. And then from the back pool, sort of behind the curtain, we would send all five dolphins out to the front pool to do like a opening behavior or something. Everyone would, you know, ooh and ah, because they weren't expecting it. And so what we were finding is we had one dolphin. When we sent off five, she was choosing not to go and she'd stay right where she was. The other four would go and do the behavior in the front pool and then they would come back. But because we were working, speaking of sort of being outsmarted on our, on our dolphins were outsmarting us, or she was anyway, is that because of the timing of the show, you don't really want the, the audience have to wait too long. And since you had a dolphin there, most of the time, trainers would then send her by herself to do a behavior in the front pool while we were feeding the other four that just came back. And then she'd come back and then you'd send the four out. So for this sequence, which is almost always three behaviors, 
all of the dolphins had to do two things, but she only had to do one. And they probably all got the same amount of food Mm. for that section of the show. And so when I was sort of standing back and watching, like, why are we seeing this pattern with her choosing not to go on that first behavior? The first thing that I thought of was like, well, she's taking the easy street. Like she's just getting all her food for one thing. Not only is she only doing one thing, but the other dolphins were doing something that had a group contingency, which we don't run into much training dogs. But in this case, like all four dolphins had to perform the behavior simultaneously. And each one had to meet the minimum criteria in order for all of them to be reinforced. Uh And so clearly that's harder than performing by yourself. Mm. And so she just had cracked that code. And so I had suggested that for one day, we take her out of that sequence of the shows and not send her at all and not feed her at all for that portion of the show. But she got all of her food for the next portion of the show. So it was not at all like she was being withheld food just for that moment for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so the next day we sent a group criteria, which she chose not to go, but we didn't send her solo. Then we only sent the other four for the rest of it. So it was one of those like play with others or don't play and it's up to you. And what we were finding was that the four that were going out for the initial group criteria we're getting it right about 70% of the time, but oftentimes there was like one dolphin that was a little off to the side or maybe not high enough. And so when we were sending them on a group contingent behavior, right? 70% of the time they got it right. Well, it only took her two days to figure out that we were onto her. <laughs> I'm speaking not very technically when I say that, but oh, get it. anyway, she started to go on the group contingency behaviors. Once she started to join in on the group contingency behaviors, they were like 99% of the time, all of the dolphins got it right. Wow. You think that came through her communicating that with the other dolphins? I I think there's no doubt that that's what happened. Mm, That's wild. That's so interesting to me. I can't think of a single time I've ever trained a group contingency behavior in dogs. Never. That's never even crossed my mind. Everybody has to get it right or nobody gets paid. We do it with people all the time, but I've never (laughs) once... In my life, I cannot think of a single time I've done that with dogs. But I wonder if they would respond the same way as what dolphins would. I have no idea. Mm. I don't know that they have the same level of communication with each other. Mm, that's uh, my thoughts. Speaking as somebody who's crossed over between the species, yes. what are your thoughts, Some of these two dickheads yeah. way in their fucking stupid yeah. opinion. We've got an expert here. <laughs> I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the, um, the Instagram video Pat's going to put out tomorrow at his first group contingent behavior. Um, <laughs> I have not trained a group contingent behavior purposely, but I do believe that there are some aspects of that at play that not through obedience, but like if I open up the back door to my house and my, I have three dogs, if I open up the back door willy nilly and let them just sort of at their own, whatever they want to do with no structure, just do whatever they want. What would happen is that one of my dogs would push past everyone else and go out first. And then a different one of my dogs would chase her and bark at her. And so it'd be interesting to, to sort of play along with like, if, if without, it would be interesting to, to imagine creating a group contingency um, phenomenon just on letting my dogs out in the backyard as far as reinforcing them as long as everybody did it right. It's fascinating. I've never done it. I've never, I've never dabbled with it, but it mm. would be interesting. Yeah. I don't know anyone that's done it myself either. And I'd be interesting. I know dogs are very cooperative and 
you know, we all, all of us who are talking here know that they're very social and they do cue on a lot of social cues and so forth, but it's almost an extra level of cognitive communication. Yeah. I, I just don't know if it's available. And if there's anybody out there who would like to prove us wrong, I'd love to hear from you. Thinking out loud about it, I think that it probably would be a bit dangerous because I'm guessing dolphins have a better means of communication than just body language and posturing and that kind of stuff. And I don't know that dogs do. So if, if the dogs were to figure out, Hey, you are causing me to, uh, not get reinforced or even much, much worse, you're causing me to be punished. And by punishment, it could just be negative punishment. Then a dog's only means by which to educate another would be physical. And so he would likely, you could, I think there's a lot of possibility for aggression in that space because Mm. a dog would then be like, his only means of communication is physical. He's going to have to posture in a way to influence the behavior of the other dog. He can't, he literally can't communicate with him verbally. And I don't know if dolphins can do that, but their only means by which to, you know, is like basically through dominance play is the only real way that dogs can communicate via that. So it'd be a case of like, Hey, if you don't start complying, I'll bash you. That's kind of how the only way a dog could communicate that I'm thinking. So I'm kind of thinking that wolves would probably do it in order to coordinate hunting. However, but same consequence, like you don't do it right. I'll beat you up. Or we miss out on the food. That does exist. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So that's what I mean. Like to try Mm. and do it with dogs would Mm. probably be a bit of a dangerous thing to do because you might cause a problem between dogs that otherwise don't have a problem if they can figure that out. Like if they figure out, hey, you are stopping me getting reinforced, Mm. I think there's a chance that then he'd be like, I could just get rid of you and then you will no longer be the, the thing in between me and reinforcement. That's crazy, isn't it? Hey, Kim, in that situation with dolphins, Going off what Pat's talking and, and you know, from the ethos of this conversation, what do dolphins do in that situation where they're disappointed with the behaviour of the other dolphins? It depends on the dolphins. It depends on the on so many different factors. It's very common that they would be pushy or they, as I'm sure Pat could attest to, they do communicate by using their teeth and they would rake another animal at times, both for play, but also for frustration purposes. Any of the experiences that I had had, though, when we were training them for group contingent behaviors, I never saw what Pat is hypothesizing could happen. What I saw was the opposite in that when one of the sort of the stronger, usually the older uh, dogs, nope, older dolphins in the collection got involved in the conversation, it was like they just all followed the rules. Mm. So I think if there was any, if there was anything that would have led to that, I think that's, that's the kind of thing that would have happened outside of our sessions as they were just swimming around the pool, yeah. but there is um, an inhit, you know, a, a layer of respect that usually the younger animals had towards the older ones in that regard. And so that's an interesting behavior, say when you're not there, because that's exactly what we observe and do on purpose in the military. A lot of the times is that now that you're just not allowed to smack people around is what is still allowed is group punishments. And so the instructor, as an instructor, if you were physically violent with a student, which used to be very commonplace in militaries and stuff like that, like there's just no way you could get away with that these days, nor should you. But what typically, what then happens is group punishments 
Like so, everyone's doing push-ups? Well, yeah, whatever it is. Mm. You made a mistake. Everybody's getting the punishment within the guidelines that we're allowed to give, whether mm. it is push-ups or miss a meal or, you know, whatever those things. And that's done on purpose. So the students bash you later. So there are other students who there is no reporting channel for and you know, can't, aren't putting their career at risk and doing that kind of stuff. And mm. so, like, you know, everybody's seen Full Metal Jacket where they bash old mate Goma Pyle with the soap. They all keep getting punished for him. And so one night they all beat the shit out of him. And it worked, but um, within the capacity, like he now has, what he realized is it's not just my actions are having an influence on other people and I am not just going to reap repercussions. He really understood that other people were. And then I feel like that's what would very likely happen with dogs. If you were to try and enforce that on dogs, I think Mm. that they would be like, hey, even if it's not right there and then in front of you, they might later be like, you are getting between me and something I want. Let's fight over it. I think- but fuck, I don't know. And I can't think of a single group contingent behavior that I would try and teach to dogs the, to test that. And nor, probably nor should I, because in case I'm right. See what being a mammal trainer has brought up, Kim, all these can of worms you've opened now? I know. I was just <laughs> thinking too, as you we were talking, I probably have trained one, potentially one group contingent behavior with two of my dogs, because as a trick, they're trained to sort of play leapfrog, mm. that one will lie down and the other will jump over and then that one will lay down and the first one will jump over. And so clearly one of them couldn't do it if the other was not doing what they were supposed to. So if they do that correctly, then they both get reinforced. But that's, you know, it's a cute trick. Mm. You know, it's not like a crazy complicated group contingent, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were multi-dog tricks that are in fact group contingent. Mm. This would be a good question for Sarah Bruski, who performs, like I was watching a video of hers the other day where all her dogs are standing by waiting their turn. I don't know if they, and in her performances, I don't know whether they do things together where one can get it wrong and the other gets it right and nobody gets paid. I don't know. Oh, was that her fast forward one? Yeah. Yeah. She was getting dogs to jump on her back. Yeah. Mm. Well, all kinds Mm. of stuff, but Mm. that like the other dogs are waiting their turn there. I don't know if she does anything that's you know, joint things. I think that we probably do see a level of group continuum behavior in like a daycare sort of setting where dogs are all in the same pen. And when you open the door, you're not allowed to rush the door. And if you were to then wait, if you were to then require all the dogs wait there to be, have one come out. And if you were to shut the door, like negative punishment style, like anybody that rushes the door, your door gets shut and you don't get to go through. Everybody has to wait. I suppose that that's a group contingent behavior. Like imagine your criteria was three seconds of the, all the dogs waiting, ready to come through the gate before, while it's open before I give them permission to. And if anybody rushes the gate, that gets the gate shut and the three second timer starts again. I think we could probably put that in the category of a group contingent behavior. And you do see instances of frustration and aggression in that circumstance sometimes Mm. in daycare facilities. You see dogs. Now, I don't know whether it's like a correction to the dog that did the wrong thing or it's just boiled over frustration because they observe a dog do the wrong thing and maybe they just bite the dog that's right next to them rather than the dog that's causing the problem. It's but hard it's to know. To yeah, it's, it's just hard to know how different they would be analytically compared to a dolphin that went from 70% upskilling to 99%. Yeah. I'd like to imagine that conversation of that female dolphin that gets with the rest of them and goes, listen, you motherfuckers. <laughs> We're going to start doing this right. But in such fast duration too, like, I mean, I think you said that happened within a two-day period, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, really that's cool the thing that. that really – when my mind has been ticking over listening to you two going backwards and forwards on this, the two-day duration of the skill being up so dramatically, that's where I sort of think, wow, that's... Well, yeah, that really does speak to that they they didn't have to learn the trick any better. They just got a had, dressing... Had a word. They got a dressing down mm-hmm. and got told, hey, do it fucking properly. Yep. I know. And they're, 
there's, you know, I guess another aspect of, of the same dolphin, ironically, I guess, was I was teaching her how to do a front flip and also teaching her how to do voluntary blood draw. And she wasn't super food motivated. So she didn't really hold awesome for the blood draw, but she loved doing the front flip. So I used the front flip as reinforcement for her blood draw. And then in a matter of just a week or two, the vets were able to get blood from her for the first time in quite a while, but the blood actually indicated she was pregnant. So we stopped training front flip. Hopefully she didn't pair that together, but it was two years from when she stopped one session on a front flip, then she was pregnant for 12 months and then she nursed her baby for 12 months. And then when I went back to do the front flip again, two years later, she was exactly at the same point. There was no backsliding at all. Wow. What stops her just doing front flips on her own? Well, she could, but she, we wouldn't have encouraged it when she was pregnant. But it's so fascinating that you could use a behavior that she could do anytime she wanted as a reinforcer. Like, you know, I like use self-reinforcement. Yeah. So mm. like I use behaviors as reinforcement regularly, especially with my dog who he's crazy for sprinting. He loves to just sprint. So I regularly use that on the mill, like, Hey, do this thing. And now you can just blast off, but he can't just blast off on the mill anytime he wants. Right. Like, so if a dolphin is like, man, I'll let you stab me with a needle and take my blood just so I can do something I can do anytime <laughs> by myself. It's kind of like telling a kid who's watching his iPad like, if you're good, I'll let you use the iPad. Yeah, you'd think you'd see the dolphin <laughs> in the pool just going, wee, yeah. just doing these little flips all over the place and going, you can't stop me. That kind of is interesting. Maybe that was some sort of pre-macking in that, like, the flip had the, some value that it was assigned from a nut from what it led to in the past. So it wasn't necessarily the the flip itself that was reinforcing. It was the potential of what it could have led to. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know. Hey, Kim, just another one. Well, we're talking about pregnancies and so forth. And you earlier on in the episode, you were talking about, you know, you left that career because you became pregnant and pretty mm -hmm. much like literally got out of the pool and the next day had a baby. How did the dolphins respond to you when they knew you were pregnant? Because I'm very curious about that, considering they've got such a large portion of their brain dedicated to sonar and so forth. Like they would have been able to scan you and sort of like know that there were changes in what's going on with you. How did it, how did it affect your relationship with them? The dolphin's sonar system 100% would be able to, to do that, but not through neoprene. And we always wore a wetsuit. Right. So the only thing that I saw from dolphins towards me would have been most likely because my body changed or my gait changed, my dive into the pool changed, I'm sure. Mm. And so, but I didn't see them act like crazy different with me than they did when I was not pregnant. Is that a procedural thing? Like you must wear a wetsuit in the water for a reason other than that it's a uniform or has it got to do with the way the dolphin will interact with you? Ours was primarily for safety precautions that we didn't want, you know, the layer of neoprene would help if a dolphin were to bite me. Mm -hmm. It would help me not get as bit as if I were in a in just a swimsuit. Yeah, totally. And we, we wear neoprene under bite suits for the exact same yeah. reason. It just is that and the, little um, bit of And the water was also a little cold. Right. Yeah. So it would have been chilly to get in without a wetsuit. Yeah. So what's the likelihood of that happening? I'm not trying to expose the dark side of dolphin training, but what's the likelihood of being nipped or bitten by a dolphin? High, I guess. <laughs> they have a hundred razor sharp teeth in mm. their mouth. 
And so it could be an accident. It could be purposeful. Uh, what probably one of the worst dolphin bites I got was during a play session where we were playing with a ball and she was just flashing her head around having the time of her life. And then all of a sudden I was bleeding. It was one of those cuts that was so sharp. I didn't even feel it. I was wondering why the water was turning red. Wow. Not to say that they wouldn't bite aggressively, they would do that also frustration for sure. Mm. Um, but that was clearly a huge part of our job to make sure that that did not happen. Yep. Breeding season. That was an interesting time having a collection that had both males and females in it because the males food drive went to almost nothing. I was thinking at first when you were telling your original story of your show that you saw where it didn't go well, um, I was thinking maybe breeding season, but unless they could change or rotate the collection around the show you saw a few days later may have been different dolphins because breeding season would be more than just one day. Mm. Yeah. It um, was like, it was literally a day apart. So I don't know right. what they did. I mean, you they know, brought out that boss dolphin. Yeah, yeah. maybe. <laughs> she was like, listen, you fucking assholes. Yeah. You got to start working. Yeah. I mean, look, they did some things, but, you know, it was just, I could tell it was a runaway show. Like I wasn't really an invested as an animal trainer then. I was only a young guy. But what I could see, I mean, it was obvious to everybody and they made comedy out of it. Everyone laughed and sort of got in the spirit of it. No one got angry or anything like that. I could see that the, you know, looking back on it now, I could see the trainers were frustrated because they were looking at each other quite a lot and, you know, they were standing there posturing with their hands on the hips. But I could just remember, you know, like they were trying to do things and they were just going, oh, you know, he's, she's doing something else now or he's doing this or rah, rah, rah. And it was just like, you know, then they play the music and I'm sure that they just had a contingency when the show goes bad. Is that, yes. is that what happens? Yeah. It's almost like the, um, the B roll or the B script yeah. of, of whatever their narrator would be supposed to say could easily change to something completely different based on what's going on. So for some of our shows, we might've had to um, break, leave the dolphins for a minute, leave the narrator out there, like talking about some tangent, come back, try again. Sometimes that made a world of difference. Sometimes we could shift our dolphins. We had a, a series of gates that we could use to shift animals around if we needed to. And so that was also another option. You could always just in the heat of the moment, switch whichever dolphins were scheduled for that show. But usually we knew enough about their behavior even by the morning mm. to be able to plan what our show series would be like. So for instance, if it was in the middle of breeding season, we usually did not use our males during the shows. Mm -hmm. When my son was a baby, probably from six months to two years old, we used to go to Taronga Zoo every Thursday because I had him all day and he loved going there. And you know, with kids, you can like that young, you can't be there very long. So we, we scheduled it. We'd always arrive in time to see the seal show. Then mm -hmm. we'd go see some animal and then we'd see the bird show. And for like 18 months, we did that every day, every week. And I, I reckon I could have done the seal show. Like I, I, because I was so obsessed with it, I was, you know, watching so intently that I picked up all their cues. I knew the whole routine of the show. I knew how to, I knew all the things and how it went. And that was the most fascinating thing to me was often when it didn't go right. And I'm sure all the keepers got sick of this dickhead in the crowd constantly asking questions because I would always hang around afterwards <laughs> to ask, you know, they're like, ask the keeper questions. And there's kids asking, you know, like little kids asking and like- Pat swatting them all yeah, out of the way. Little Get kids out of the way. Like, How much does the seal weigh? And they'll be like, oh, he weighs this much. And I'll be like, I couldn't help but notice on the third behavior, <laughs> the dog didn't follow your knee, the, the seal didn't follow your knee cue and you recovered in this way. Like, is that a, and I ask some really technical questions and some of them would really like it. And then we'd get into these long drawn out conversations about it. But that was always the most interesting thing to me was when it doesn't go right, it's live, right? It's mm. a live show. How do they recover okay. that? Because 
And all of them kind of distilled it down to, I'm sure it's part of their training, is that like it's entertainment. It doesn't actually matter whether any of these SEALs do any of the fucking things you're asking them to do. Like so long as the people in the crowd are entertained, that's all that matters. But I would love to watch it. And there was one keeper in particular who was very good at building, whether it was behavioral momentum or like a habit of compliance or something like that. But whenever she would ask for a big motion that the SEAL would just say, nah, like I'm not doing that. She would then go like little behavior, little behavior not reinforced Mm -hmm. and then big behavior. And it would always work out every time. And the way that she would then pretend to integrate that into the show, if you weren't some psychopath that was going every week and analyzing (laughs) the show, you wouldn't know that like she had a non-reward marker for him. So Mm -hmm. that like when he gave that refusal, she wasn't building that into the chain of behaviors that would then lead to it. Like she would then, like it was usually diving off of the big, the, the big dive into the thing and hit the ball There was one in particular that just would regularly say, no, I'm not doing that. And Mm -hmm. then she would get him to blow his, like do the like thing with his tongue, like with his tongue and then roar. And then he'd always jump in and she didn't reinforce those two behaviors, which kind of broke the rule on that. We always hear that it's a consistent reinforcement schedule. And that's how she built some frustration within him to get him to then do the big motion, which she then reinforced for. Like I was, you know, I'd, I'm obsessed by that shit. I love watching it. But it mm. was it was fascinating always to see how they deal with it not going well. For me, it was a it was part of the grounding in dog sports competitions, like because that happens in in training. We we can use our tools, we can correct, you know, with dogs, we can do all those kinds of things. But in competition, when something doesn't go right, now you go like, all right, I've lost those points, but I still need that behavior to happen. So take for example, say in PSA, like with the down in motion in the level one, with the down in motion in front of the decoy, right? So if your dog breaks that down, your down stay points are gone but you're allowed to go set the dog back there because that's where your recall happens from. Mm. Right. So you see people whose dog breaks it down and then it's, they get flustered and they go and like put the dog back down there. And now the dog's like, Oh, I'm like I'm flat. Right. Like I did the wrong thing to me. It feels like the session is over. This has never happened in training before because in training I have the tools to compel the dog back into it. And now I don't. So I'm hands off and I've got to figure out a way to put the dog back in the down. We're learning that from that lady with the seals. That's where I was like, oh, I need some other behaviors so that I can get some dopamine spikes of non-reinforcement. So when if my dog breaks it down or if my dog ever does something and doesn't do it, I need to then go like quick behavior, quick behavior, quick behavior, actual behavior that I want. Mm-hmm. And so then he's like dopamine spike, dopamine spike, dopamine spike. Okay, now I can actually hold that down. And I'm not being judged at any of those times. Like those are just behaviors that I'm using to get the dog back into the mode where I can be judged. So I think it's really fascinating. There is definite crossover and it's not, I was not interested in it because I was like, look, he fucked up. I'm like, no, how did you guys recover? Because you got 400 people watching you and you need to do something. And right? you're literally trialing every day. Yeah. Every day is, mm. is the day of the race. Yep. Right. So it's, it's fascinating to, to deal in that space. So I, I imagine you would have, you know, I'm stealing, I'm talking when we've got you on here, but I imagine you would have a million <laughs> similar things of how do I recover this after it goes bad? Well, I definitely have some similar experiences of watching other marine mammal shows throughout my lifetime where I'm noticing every little thing that's maybe not perfect. But I think of all of what you just shared, um, I think that 
what I, what I wanted to highlight is that when I'm working with my clients' dogs, I'll videotape a lot of the sessions that I do, but I don't edit those for the clients. They get like raw, unedited footage, mainly because years ago, my best case scenario is that I attempt to do a training session with their dog and it doesn't go the way I thought it was going to go or I'd hoped it would go. And then allowing my clients to be able to watch like, well, what did I do? How did I handle that when it wasn't going perfectly? Mm. Because from a learning opportunity for the clients, that's going to serve them way better than them knowing what to do when their dog is being perfect. Because we all know that that's just not an area that they're going to, that they don't need a lot of help on that part Mm. of it. So that's what it made me think of when you were talking about that. And it's funny because those aren't necessarily, I don't, I don't always post like a whole bunch of just raw unedited videos on social media, but I, I do think those are the ones that, that people can learn the best from. Yeah, totally. I think people really appreciate that authenticity in the background of training when, you know, like they know that you're an accomplished trainer in anything that you're doing, and then you show them raw footage of where it goes wrong. And they, they say, oh, that's where I can relate to you as a human being. We did an episode Pat and I with Luke and Panos a while ago where they've mentored under both of us. They've got their own podcast show, but they came on and we all talked about our experience when we first got into the industry and we we're all scared, you know, like the first time we went into a, a private lesson by ourselves and we not so much scared, but you were just nervous. Like you had that build up of what am I going to expect here? What's going to happen? What are they going to think of me? There's a lot of things that are racing through your head and you sort of get like a little bit of mild anxiety when you're first about to step into the room. A lot of the feedback, like a lot of feedback that I got from that, from people were saying, you know, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for being vulnerable and, you know, authentic and sharing that you and Pat were scared and and Luke and Panos were as well, because I felt like that and I thought something was wrong with me. You know, like I sat in the car and I was shaking or I was nearly throwing up going into the house, but people appreciate that. They Mm -hmm. like to know that we still make mistakes and things don't go perfect. And behind the camera, there is a real person frustrated with some of the behaviors that they're getting from the dog on the day. For sure. I think that in addition to that, I for sure will make mistakes and I'll be able to explain to my clients, like, don't do what I did in that video. It doesn't work. But I think more beneficial to them would be how should they act if their dogs do Mm. something wrong? And more times than not, it's people saying to me, like, I can't believe that you were still so calm or, you know, I get rattled or frustrated and start to raise my voice. And I noticed you were just even more quiet than you might've been before it started to go wrong. So I feel like in those videos where the dog isn't like the things aren't progressing the way you want, it's still really great for the clients to be able to see what would be the ideal way for them to handle that. Yeah. 100% um, agree. But for sure, not to say, you know, there's plenty of times where, you know, any one of us on, on my team, for sure, anybody's nervous. I feel like my trainers that work for me are most nervous if I go to the classes or to their lessons that they're teaching. And if I'm not there, they're super fine and confident. And then when I show up, it's like, you know, the principal's here. Mm-hmm. So I've got very um, good feedback about you from Samantha. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> right. she, she really enjoys working for you. And she said, you're an amazing coach. Oh, that's really nice of her to say. Mm. She specializes in teaching all of our virtual group training classes. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a client, I told her this today, I had a client yesterday call with a complaint of one of our in-person group training classes, which wasn't a huge deal. And he took a lot of responsibility, which was great that he was able to do that. But 
He said he showed up in a really bad mood and then a couple of things happened. So he wanted to talk to me about that. And while he was complaining to me about the class, he's like, oh, I also want to tell you, Samantha is incredible. And I just love the virtual classes. And he said he he's a professor and teaches virtually for a college. And so he knows how hard it is, but mm. that he wanted to let me know she's doing a super job. So the feelings mutual. Yeah, that's awesome. Samantha. That's cool. So tell us about your business. Uh, what mm. What is it that you do now, now that you're out of the pool and on land? Out of the pool, right. I, I have, for the last 12 years, owned a dog training business local in the Annapolis, Maryland area called Paws and Possibilities. I also train some dogs outside of New York City in Staten Island because I spend some time up there as well. My Maryland location of Paws and Possibilities has seven trainers, including myself, Three of us are full-time and then um, four of us are, four of them are part-time. And we also have admin support behind the scenes for website and customer service when they don't need to talk to me. And then other trainers, some of the trainers on my staff do all the sales calls and, and coordinating. We do a lot as much as we can automated, which is one of the things I learned from Tim Ferriss. So if Tim listens to this podcast for his dog, Molly, then thank you for that, Tim. I automate just as much as I can. We specialize really in pet dogs. And in this area of Maryland, our entire town is super dog friendly. And so it's really, really great that people get to have their dogs more integrated with them and their family and going out or eating at outdoor restaurants. Their dogs can go with them. I always like to say our specialty is teaching dogs how to be calm, which I think it makes it much easier for them to live with their families. Is it board and train style stuff or drop off day train kind of things that you guys do? Do you ever do in-home behavior stuff? Mm -hmm. What's it look like? It's full service. So we do board and trains that are at my house when we have them there with me and I do that, that training. We have private training where we go to the client's house. We also have private training where they come to my home. I have a five acre piece of property. So some of the clients will bring their dogs here. And that's typically if those clients live pretty far away from us, they'll come here to meet with one of the trainers. And then we have group training classes, day trains. We also have day trains. They drop off for the day and pick up. And then um, our group training class includes puppy socialization, but our group training classes is a little bit unique in that it's like you join as a member and then you have access to being able to come to as many group training classes as you want for any 30 day period. Uh, and it's on a subscription so that every month they just are, are rolled into the next 30 days and anybody can cancel anytime they want, but many of our clients don't, they just keep coming to classes. And so our goal is to provide enough classes each month so that or each week so that they're not full because they, we also have people sign up ahead of time for which class they want because we don't want our classes to get too big, mm-hmm. but we have everything, beginner, intermediate, advanced, tricks class, leash walking class, like an open coaching where they can work on anything they want. We have a class that's specific for clients who do work with the remote caller. We also have a huge population in our area who've gone through our pet therapy classes to get their dogs certified through pet partners to be therapy dogs in the area as well. That's cool. Mm. I know we've kind of touched on it, but I'm really interested in just the finer details of the progression between you leaving you know, marine mammal training, going into dolphin, into dolphin, into dog <laughs> training. Uh, and I know that you said that was kind of born of necessity. And I'm really interested to see what were any aha moments that you had? Like, that's what I'm really curious about is the duality between like, okay, these dolphins are in a pool 
they're captives really. We're training them just for food. We have the capacity to, well, we, they, I know they get to eat all the day and stuff, but it's really, you're in a really different model, right? Whereas like it's, you know, controlled environment, they're training in a Skinner box. What were some of the aha moments that you had when you started doing more and more dog training and transition to completely dog training model of where you're like, oh, this is different. And what stands out for you as a, a real memory and like, this is a different process. This is a different thing. That's a really interesting question. I don't, I don't think that I had that experience like after I was a professional dog trainer, because I feel like I was crystal clear on that difference just with my own dogs in recognizing that, especially when I was struggling with my dog and that, you know, I can't just walk away or I can't just come back in 10 minutes. Like it's happening right now and that I need to try to resolve it right now. It also gave me a lot of empathy really for the clients who feel super frustrated and they're at their wits end. And that I do feel like the, the phrase I hear a lot from clients as they call for help is that they love their dog, but right now they don't like them. Mm -hmm. I think that stems from problem behaviors that they don't know how to resolve in a hopeless vibe of like, there's no way to, to stop it, especially if their dog's not trained to go into a crate. There's like, there's no way to get it to end. Separation anxiety is a huge one for that. I just had a client the other day who told me, you know, she rescued an older dog with medical needs who has separation anxiety last September. And since last September, she has not spent more than two hours away from her dog wow. at one time ever. And that her whole life is on hold as she's trying to train her dog. She's not dating. She's not going to the gym anymore. She like rushes to the grocery store and comes home because it's like, everything is about this dog, which that's clearly not the way that, that we want anybody to live their life. So mm -hmm. I think in that regard, it's like hard to get away from the problems when those problems are significant. Yeah. The sort of part two to that question is something I think that Correct me if I'm wrong, but something I think is quite unique about you is that you are a balanced trainer. You do you, you just said you have remote collar classes at your school and all that kind of stuff. And most of the people that I see that transition from the exotic animal training or marine mammal or whatever tend not to go that way. What was the catalyst for you? Like how come that's where you sit? I feel like my philosophy on dog training is it's really about everything is about working with the owners. And so for me, it was always about wanting to be able to help the owners create the relationship with their dog that they want in whatever way makes the most sense for their dog and that owner. Um, and that I didn't feel like I wanted or needed to narrow down what my options might be simply because of what my past job was. Um, and so I do believe that because I was in an interesting, unique experience with my border collie and my baby that resulted in a very near bite when she was six months old. And I worked with a professional dog trainer who helped me learn how to use a remote collar. And I was able to very successfully rehabilitate their relationship. And they, can, they cohabitated peacefully after that training was done, where I was as a professional marine mammal trainer, recognizing that I was in a very real predicament of needing to rehome a dog I'd owned for almost six years mm -hmm. because it wasn't safe for my daughter and clearly her needs outweighed everything else. Mm -hmm. And having a professional dog trainer say to me, 
there's a way that you don't have to rehome your dog. If you're open to it, I was like, sign me up. Like, what do you mean? If I'm open to it, I couldn't imagine having to rehome him. And so it wasn't ever a big deal for me personally, because it gave me the ability to have my life, Mm. um, have my dog and my daughter and everything was fine. And so I think because I'd had that experience, I didn't ever have any kind of a hesitation or resistance to training a dog with a balanced approach. I agree with sort of everything I've ever heard you guys say, as far as it's got to be done responsibly and ethically and correctly. A lot of that is with regards to teaching our clients correctly. But, you know, I find with our clients that it's easy for them to learn the way we teach. And so, you know, I, I've, I have heard a lot of people say that they, they get concerned that, well, what if the clients do it wrong? And I guess my train of thought on that is like, well, then they didn't have a very good teacher. And so if you're teaching the dog owners correctly, then what happens is they see the results that they're looking for and their relationship with their dog is way better because of it. That is fascinating to me. I wish that I'd asked you that earlier because I would like to talk about that for two hours in that I feel like so many trainers and the path in which the training that they do relates to very early imprinting with like, especially under a high stress situation. So high stress situation, I love this dog, but I'm not going to let this dog hurt my kid. There's not a more stressful situation that most people, pet owners can put themselves in. And then to have that problem solved really well by someone that that becomes the path that you would follow. And maybe if that problem was like, I would, you could never know, but if that problem was solved in a different way by someone else, you might've gone down a whole different path. Or if the problem wasn't solved at all, you'd be on a whole nother trajectory as a person. You might still be in the pool. You know, like it's, that's fascinating to me that fate. Yeah. But mm. early imprinting, I think that there's so much to that. And especially, you know, what we know about myelination and the, like the effects under stress, like when someone can, when you are under pressure and there's a path out of that pressure, that really becomes the the chosen pathway. And that's fascinating to me. I, like I could talk about that for hours. Mm. <sighs> hey, last bit. Yeah. I don't know how to phrase this. What other media do you consume? Because You know, I'm trying more and more to be very careful in all the words that I say, because I think that words really, really matter, especially as coaches and educators of people. You can really, you can guide the direction people, you can influence people's thoughts just by using the correct words. And I feel like in all the things I've heard you say, not just here now, but by hearing you on on Clubhouse and other places, you're exceptional at that. And I'm guessing while there's probably a, a big genetic portion to that. I feel like you've educated yourself somewhere on that. So what are some of the things that have been influential in you and the way that you communicate with people? Because I wasn't joking at the start when I say that I'm, I'm amazed by your kindness and respect to others in the way that you communicate with people who are sometimes clearly just misinformed or having a bad day or saying something that might be out of character for them. You pick on that, you pick that up very quickly and sort of realign people. So how did you get to that point? What an interesting question. I think that I've always had that as a natural talent and I have also purposefully worked on honing that skill even more over the years. Part of it was choosing very powerfully how I wanted to show up for my kids. And in part, that was 
lessons that it was like not wanting to be like my mom was with me. And so, right, having an example of what I didn't want. So I had to sort of purposely create what I did want. Nurturing and caring for them, it was my top priority. But they also, when they were very young, went to Montessori school. Mm -hmm. And I studied the Montessori philosophy of learning and I was fascinated by it. And that certainly contributed in part to always caring and always making sure that I think the way I phrased it to my son when he was really little was like making sure that when people spent time with him, that they would feel better after having spent time with him than before. Mm. Um, It's kind of like that, but everywhere. And so I also did some self-development through Landmark Education, and that helped significantly teach me about how your words create your world and that anything is possible. And so that is sort of, that was pivotal in my transformation when I was feeling very stuck after I got divorced, but before I was able to segue into training dogs, that transformation, I think really helped a lot for me on recognizing really the the power of your words and that that goes much deeper than just what you choose to say outside out loud, but it's also what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. And then when you fast forward many more years, I mentioned that my husband was an FBI agent. He is trained for the FBI to teach at Quantico. And he's also contracted to teach the New York police department personality assessment called DISC, which is fairly common. And a lot of people have heard of it, but he taught my training staff the DISC training. And I think that was sort of the cherry on top in that not only can I be responsible for myself and my words, but I can easily sort of hear what someone else is saying. And then almost as if I can kind of get into their world and then it helps my teaching for sure. And that I'm able to articulate something to them in the way that's going to make the most sense to them, even if it might not be the way I normally would say it, like if I wanted to talk to myself, if that makes sense. It does because listening to you again, back to our old mate clubhouse. Mm. When I hear you navigating through the conversation, sometimes you take your time, you're slow and methodical about what you're saying and you say things with conviction where I noticed that some of the other times with the conversations, you know, it's a room full of dog trainers who are all excited and who've all got something to say. There's egos there as well. Like everybody wants to get the answer out. And in a way, it's like a room of barking dogs. Sometimes it's somebody will bring up a point and then you've got like five people who've got the answer and all want to bark it out at the same place. And it's not too bad. In some of the rooms that I've been in with the majority of the people that we're usually talking with, there is a great deal of respect there and patience where I've been in other rooms and it's just an absolute nightmare with people yelling over each other and you know, and that's the one thing about it they need to sort of modify in the app is where people are just yelling and screeching over each other and there is no order and it's chaos. There's another dog trainer, I'm not going to say the person's name, but they're in LA and they've got like rooms opening all over the place. And I've, I go into their room sometimes to support them because they ping me into them, but it's just people just randomly yelling and, you know, there's just squabble and noise that you can last no longer than five minutes in there because the conversation just isn't enjoyable. But when you do have a directed conversation and there's thought and process in where it's leaning into, 
and there's some sort of logical conclusion about the conversation, it's really nice to be in that room full of people where it's not just, hey, 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 I've got something to say. Me, 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 me. Let me get in. Let me get in. I've got to say something. It's nice when, you know, like there are a couple of cooler heads and people are sort of directing the flow and, you know, sharing time where people can have a little bit of, of the conversation. For me, that's been a great experience with that is being part of cleverly thought out and directed conversations where there is a lot of respect and patience in the room. And I think you're one of the bastions of that. Like you bring that to people's knowledge that, you know, you can talk nicely and you can talk calmly and you can think clearly about where the conversation is going. I think I have good impulse control. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't have too much more to say on that, but I think that I find you an incredibly thoughtful and kind person and I appreciate you very much mm. for being that. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Hey, I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. So, Kim, give us all your details. How can people get in contact with you? Tell us the full service of your business and, and everything you offer. Sure. So the easiest place to start would probably be our website, and that is pauseandpossibilities.com. And you'll be able to see on our website all the services we offer, including board and train, day train, private training sessions, group training sessions. We also have an online dog training program called Manners Matter, and people have done that all around the world. It's a standalone program designed to take four weeks, and it takes you through a similar curriculum that we teach in our group training classes. We also have virtual dog training classes. So people also do that from all around the country. And um, the only problems we run into sometimes is time differences. So not 100% sure if you live in Australia, if our times would work for your group classes, but we'll do the best we can to accommodate all your friends in Australia. Sounds awesome. Now you've got to say, I'm Kim Greco and I'm complete. (laughs) (laughs) I don't try to say that. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you making the time for us. I know that we've gone over the time that we allocated because I was late getting here and we've probably been a pain in your ass, but we really appreciate you doing it for us. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate being included. Thank you, guys. No, you're most welcome. That's it for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, and do that through whatever subscription service you download us from, Mm -hmm. and then go to a different one that you don't download us from and do it there. And leave a review. Yeah, a good review. Mm. Right. If you've got something bad to say- Maybe just tell just your friend to yourself. No, just tell your friend just straight up to his face. Like, to just keep it off the internet. Go tell, yeah. us, go tell us on Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> or if you just want to shoot me an abusive message, that's fine too. Just privately. Don't put it out publicly. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Mm-hmm. Three bucks a month, get you an extra episode there. I'm trying out a new technique for the content that's coming out this month. Nice. So, yeah. I'm, hey, we I'm, had a sudden upsurge in Patreon lately. Like, we have. Um, we've had a, I think because of your content that you're putting out lately it's uh, that and people support the show i think and the instagram the gram the gram helping. you're yep. all over the gram yeah, i'm all you're, over the gram a bit of a social i'm, I'm media becoming a little bit now. of a gram master yeah yeah not really yeah. but trying to a couple of old dogs learning new tricks over here <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah, jump into patreon give us three mm. bucks or more whatever you like and yep. you get extra content and a little film made by me every month mm-hmm. and other stuff yes uh live q a shit i gotta organize one of those and 
Teespring. Another way to support the show is Teespring. Mm. Get yourself some cool merch. There's cool new merch story. in there. The cool story, Show Me Your Dog, is yep. in there. People are buying it. Yes. They're sending us screenshots of yes. their purchase. It's amazing. I yes. think we get four bucks for every shirt you buy. Yes. It's the best. Buy 10. Give yes. us 40 of your dollars. So many yeses. If you want to get in contact with us, if you want dog training information, group mm. source that shit in the discussion group. Yes, on Jump Facebook. into the Canine Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. Another thing that we could put into this part is we could say join our club. On Clubhouse. Because we have a club. You could search us on Clubhouse. We are the Canine Paradigm on Clubhouse. Yes, and you can join. You can go in there and click on it and request to join and I will add you. Yes. And... If you've got something personal, tell us. Just shoot us an email. Mm. Yeah, info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye.